start with the intro. So, welcome to another episode of Vox Industry Malaysia. To, uh, this is your host, Sharul Hamdan. I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in and responding to our content in such a positive way. Uh, we appreciate it if you can help to share our podcast. Uh, we do this completely free of charge and hope everyone can benefit from the content we put out. Um, today, we're going to talk about consumption trends in the changing environment in the world, especially with this coronavirus pandemic affecting the entire globe. We see empty retail malls all over the world. You see consumption has dropped from a cliff as we saw US jobless claims spiked um, to a 30 times standard deviation from the norm. This is the highest ever in history, worse than the Great Depression, worse than 2008. Um, so moving forward, where we see consumers start to really tie their wallets up tight, focus more on consumer staples, perhaps rather than discretionary items. Also, we will explore whether tech can help alleviate the consumption slowdown uh, with the emergence of e-commerce and a solid logistic network now. Uh, here with me today, we have Imran Khan, a good friend and ex-employee of one of the largest consumer companies in the world, British American Tobacco. Uh, Imran worked in the corporate finance department uh, for a number of years there. Uh, he would have exposure to the numbers and a bird eyes bird view on how the numbers are coming through in a changing environment. So we would like to pick his brain on that. Uh, he has also just finished his MBA at the University of Manchester. So we have some interesting research pieces we can go through together later. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Imran. Hey, thank you very much, Sharul. Uh, and to all the listeners out there, I guess I'll just start off with a bit of a PSA. Um, please stay at home. If you're listening to this, uh, do it on your phone in the comforts of your home. If you're in the car, just go get your groceries and come all the way back home. Once again, stay at home. <laughs> Great. That's a very, very clear instruction to all. And, you know, I just want to start off this this podcast with following up on your statement. You know, how are you holding up in this partial lockdown environment? How are your consumption patterns changing this time around? Um, how, how, how are you dealing with it personally? All right. So, um, so far, everything's okay. I'm grateful to be in the pink of health. My wife and I uh, have thankfully been spared from any symptoms or any other diseases so far, alhamdulillah. Um, you know, so it goes without saying that most companies have basically implemented their BCPs at this stage, unless you are part of the essential services list. Uh, my wife and I are not part of that list. Uh, however, work still continues. The economy still has to trudge along. So, um, yeah, working from home, uh, I believe one of your prior podcast touched upon this phenomenon uh you know it being um basically the status quo right now and there's a lot of adjustment both personally and professionally that has to happen and uh, that's quite common right and that's something that my wife and i are also going through at this stage it's day 12 i believe uh however for for us it's probably day 14 day 15 because the bcps kicked into high gear earlier before the MCO or the PKP, however you want to call it. Uh, so yeah, um, it's more common than people actually think. Uh, working from home um, is typically an arrangement that's provided to many MNCs, uh, at least staff of those MNCs. Um, and I do believe that you know a larger segment of the SME industry is actually uh, starting to practice these more um, Western, quote-unquote, 
management styles, right? Uh, working from home, there's a lot of flexibility. Tech is definitely the greatest enabler of such flexibilities in the workplace. And, um, you know, studies have definitely shown a boost in productivity. Um, and at the same time, it has a compounding effect on things like employee morale, uh, motivation, um, you know, you keep your workers happy, uh, they will definitely perform for you. Uh, I definitely subscribe to that school of thought. Yeah, I, I totally agree because if I were to start a company today, you know, just maybe a consulting company or whatever, it doesn't really require huge IT infrastructure um, behind the operations. I'll just tell my, my, my employees, right, look, I want you to have a chill life, but, you know, work when you need to do the work. So you can work from home anytime you want. You know, you can come into the office if you need to. But um, honestly, if you just can work from home and, and just need a laptop and an internet connection, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. You know, we the management saves up cost on rent, like office rental and bills. The employee gets happy because he can spend more time with his or her kids and family. Staying at home is more comfortable. And I think productivity, a lot of people say that productivity actually drops uh, when you're working from home. But actually, I think it's it's the other way around. I think productivity actually improves um, because you're in a more comfortable environment and you're more goals focused to sort out things quickly because no one's actually, you know, behind your shoulder checking on you physically, right? So you want to get your goals all done by the end of the day. And it's up to you la, when you want to do it, how fast you want to do it. So I, I think productivity actually improves, not notwithstanding that employee happiness will also improve. So I think it's a great... It's a great, strange um, phenomenon happening right now. Correct. And, you know, it's the future. Um, as tech becomes uh, more and more increasingly intertwined into everything that we do, uh, from the professional stage down to the personal stage, um, working from home arrangements are going to be a norm. It's going to be a reality that we cannot avoid. Um, so the real challenge um, that's actually happening here in Malaysia so if we look at uh, mainstream media, um, I do a lot of social media trolling. So, um, you know, I go through all these like big groups with their thousands of comments and things like that just to get, um, get a feel of the pulse of the people on the ground. Yeah, there's probably a couple of cyber troopers in there. But then by and large, the messaging um, has not changed, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, an increasing number of SMEs are starting to realize the benefits of these flexible home arrangements of, you know, sorry, flexible work arrangements at home rather. Um, but the real challenge is when businesses themselves, um, the actual corporate infrastructure <clears throat> is not ready or equipped to handle these large scale disruptions, uh, you know, that are extrinsic to the business, such as what we are facing today. So um, it's definitely challenging. However, um, you know, through adversity, uh, people will definitely uh, start to scale up. Uh, they'll start to, um, I guess, accept that challenge. Um, in Malay, I, I like to say, because that's exactly what it is today. Um, you have no choice. Survivability is critical. And uh, that's by and large what we're going to be talking about today. Um, consumption is uh, essentially a function of survivability. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, so I'm just looking to move forward from, you know, this this lockdown situation. And I just want to pick your brains in terms of, you know, your work previously at one of the largest consumer companies in the world. 
you know, in your experience, did you, you know, see any kind of interesting trends before this virus, interesting trends um, in terms of consumption? And you know, how how do you think consumption has changed today, given, you know, everyone's scared to get out of the house, everyone's scared to go to the mall, um, you know, police and armies are all trying to make sure they contain physical movement. Uh, do you see a major shift towards maybe online shopping, uh, e-commerce benefiting from this new trend? Okay, so um, beforehand, I think I have to place a little bit of a caveat. Um, the tobacco industry is um, extremely traditional um, in terms of the consumption patterns that we see, right? Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's an ever-changing consumer environment that we are faced with here in Malaysia. However, when it comes to attitudes towards tobacco, or at least tobacco consumption, um, it doesn't change all that much, right? Uh, the regulatory landscape here in Malaysia is extremely restrictive. So no tobacco companies can engage in things like um, above the line or below the line marketing. Um, you're severely limited in your reach uh, to the end consumer. And, you know, I guess a lot of it uh, has basically led to an industry that is essentially demand driven. You know, there's really not much um, that you can do to influence uh, actual true supply and direct consumption, you see, because of the restrictions that you have on all things, not just marketing. It's also on things like, uh, you know, the product quality itself, um, the actual biological components in the product and things like that. There are regulations that cover everything. Um so coming back to online shopping, um, here in Malaysia, you're not allowed to sell tobacco products by law uh, online. So that's why if you go online and you, you know, just search things like uh, you know, a particular brand of cigarettes, I'm going to keep this quite kosher and not name any, uh, you're not going to be able to find it, you see. And if you do, uh, I urge you to contact the relevant authorities and get that removed. Right, we are all here uh, to play the fair game and to make sure that everyone is competing on a level ground. Um, having said that, um, the tobacco in industry is again a subset of the larger FMCG industry. Um, so there's a lot of uh, nuances that you can see um, being in that wider industry and also being a consumer myself. Right, so um, I joined BAT in 2012. Uh, straight out of uni, uh, you know, fresh as can be. So, you know, what I saw is basically something like this, right? Um, so 2012 onwards, um, you know, there was an almost exponential penetration of these e-commerce platforms and solutions across all sectors here in Malaysia, right? Uh, just as a consumer, you started having a lot of talk around things like um, Lazada and Zalora entering the market. And what they actually did was basically redefined the consumer goods sales environment, right? In terms of demand generation, I guess to a certain extent uh, that was there and that's playing on the network effect of getting people on this platform and the introduction of the convenience factor. But in terms of influencing the supply side, um, I feel like there was a larger multiple of change over on that side. If you were somebody who wanted to scale up very quickly together with these platforms, um, you had to change the way you did business especially if you are a legacy business, if you've been you know, selling tiles, for example, for the past 100 years since before independence, um, and you basically op operated uh, by having a network of these different boutiques and showrooms, uh, now you probably don't need all those showrooms. Um, 
You just need one where people can come touch and feel and take a look at the product. And then everything else is basically just managed on an online platform. Um, so all this was basically starting back in the day, right? It was actually before 2012, but 2012 was when I really saw it explode on the market. So, you know, the introduction of these platforms really just spurred, you know, superlative adoption among the economically active. So you and I and our peers and our parents and things like that, um, you know, largely driven by the fact that we were increasingly connected, you know, uh, sort of correlated to that growth in these platforms is also the growth in internet adoption and mobile computing and things uh, in Malaysia at that time. And, you know, we generally just favored having an efficient service and these solutions uh, provided the service to the market. So, you know, business development 101, right? Um, you want to create a, su a successful business, satisfy a need. And uh, this wasn't just a want, it was a need. People needed more efficient ways of uh, securing products. And these platforms just did it and it just exploded. And such was the strength of this revolution that, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, in 2015, uh, you know, B2C sales, uh, you know, e-commerce e as we understand it, uh, you know, was around $1 trillion globally right, in one year in 2015. Um, and such was the strength of this marketplace that the federal government here in Malaysia um, launched a strategic roadmap in 2016 to future-proof our SMEs and promote their participation in this sector. So now, um, try to envision this, right? If the government's already pushing for SMEs, which make up something like 40% of GDP contribution here in Malaysia, um, the MNCs, uh, would definitely have had their game on when it comes to this. So you see people like Nestle, you see people like PNG, um, these large consumer good multinationals embraced um, e-commerce from a very, very um, early stage, right? Not only in Malaysia, uh, but definitely globally, right? It was something, it was a cultural revolution almost. Um, and again, it satisfied the need, you know? Uh, globally, everyone was getting more connected. They needed access to these products and they wanted it done quickly, cheaply, at their own terms. Um, you just lose out if you're not on these platforms. Uh, you know, and you basically push the envelope as an FMCG um, where the regulation allows you to, right? So big companies like your, again, like I said, your Nestle, your Dutch Lady, and things like that, um, you know, they essentially had a very wide runway they could embrace not just their own um, tech ambitions by having their own online stores and stuff, um, but also then start to be a lot more active on these platforms. So that's why now you see things like uh, official stores, right? Like Nestle and um, PNG official stores on platforms like Lazada. So this just maximizes your reach. Um, and the main benefits to these FMCGs is basically, aside from exposure, it's uh, a lower cost to serve. And in an era of heightened cross-border competitive forces, lower barriers to entry, and arguably, I'm going to say that, cheap credit, um, cost rationali rationalization and right-sizing uh, were the key buzzwords uh, from 2012 all the way up, up till now, right? And being able to diversify your revenue streams while capitalizing on tech at a lower cost to serve was exactly the value proposition that made strategic sense for large FMCGs to pursue. 
you were either in the game or you died, right? Uh, you know, now I'd just like to zoom out a bit from a tobacco point of view. Um, having said what I just did, the fact that you're either in or you die, um, it also comes down to the elasticity of the product, right? So, you know, when it came to tobacco, demand is relatively inelastic. So whether you're on the platform or not, um, there will be those consumers um, that uh, would require access to that product and they'll just find a way to get access to that product. So um, we didn't really see the need to embrace um, e-commerce solutions in a very big way. First of all, here in Malaysia, we were not allowed to. Um, but also, secondly, because uh, that lower cost to serve, the efficiencies that we could extract, uh, we focused on other parts of the business um, instead of you know trying something where you just were not allowed to do in the first place. So, yeah. I looked at like the the e-commerce trend, and and you mentioned that you know because of the restrictive regulatory environment in the tobacco industry. Um, did you did you think that because of that regulatory restriction, um, some tobacco players have actually missed out on that exponential demand growth um, when, when you see people ordering online? Um, because I'm sure it's all about volume. It's all about shipping out products as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. So do, do you think that, you know, tobacco companies or basically seen industries um, could not take benefit, could not take advantage of, of that growth. Okay, so tobacco is very special in this case, right? Uh, we can't lump it together with the generalizations that we may see for sin industries um, as a total. Uh, for example, uh, you are able to sell um, alcohol and other types of liquor-based products on online platforms, right? So if you go on Lazada, if you go on Shopee, you can buy a crate of Carlsberg. You can do that. Uh, there's no law that forbids you from doing it, but you cannot buy a carton of a particular legally sold brand of cigarettes, right? Now, in terms of the volume of the margin game, uh, I'm not going to go too deep into that at the risk of uh, pending litigation. So uh, what do you call that? But one thing I can definitely say is that, um, you know, it is a risk that has definitely been considered. However, there's really so much you can do um, especially since the regulatory environment here in Malaysia is one where you have both hands tied behind your back and someone has chopped off your leg, right? And you're expecting companies to run at 100 miles per hour. It just doesn't work that way, right? Yeah, I think what, what I'm trying to get to is are regulators actually um, restricting business growth for these companies? You know, I, I mean, let's, let's talk about ethics aside, you know, um, ESG stuff aside, let's talk about, you know, are the regulators actually restricting business growth, restricting, you know, um, a significant contributor to the economy if we could allow, um, obviously, I, I'm proceeding with, with caution here, but <laughs> perhaps, you know, provide a regulatory environment for you know, cigarettes and tobacco companies to operate in a slightly looser uh, environment, especially allowing them to sell online. Because, like you said, right, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, people are just going to find a way to get anyway, online ke, offline ke. So, are regulators, you know, should regulators be a bit more open-minded on this or is just a strict no-no? Right. So, from a regulatory perspective, we have to also understand um, 
the lobbying from other parts of the wider bureaucracy, right? Um, the government is placed in a very, I guess, a tight corner where you have to balance the needs of industry, one particular industry, versus um, the needs of the wider population and society. As a tobacco company, um, we have been very vocal um, and, you know, in our our push for harm reduction to reduce the amount of harm that these products actually do um, or affect the lifestyles of society at large. So when it comes to actually restricting um, the operational or sales capabilities of the company, I think that's a foregone conclusion. Many countries are following this route. Um, and I believe uh, it is a WHO requirement in terms of the, um, I guess, the control of tobacco sales in that sense. Um, but one thing that the government definitely needs to do right now is to step up enforcement, right? Uh, the biggest killer to the tobacco industry in Malaysia right now, as a, as, as a whole, right, the big three companies, um, is actually illicit cigarettes, yeah? So like I mentioned, there are definitely going to be people uh, who will find this product. It's d highly demand-driven, right? Uh, however, we now see a shift where um, people will actually actively seek out illicit cigarettes. Uh, if I remember correctly, at least as of January or December last year, um, illicit cigarettes stood at something like 60 or 65% of the total tobacco market here in Malaysia. So basically, like, you know, seven out of every 10 cigarettes are basically illicit. So illicit means that uh, these cigarettes or these manufacturers have not paid the requisite excise duties to the government, right? And I think this amounts to something like two billion ringgit in lost excise duty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be in the, in the industry to see the value proposition, yeah, if a pack of legal cigarettes is something like 17 ringgit off the shelf um, and there's somebody selling you a pack of 4 ringgit 50 cent illicit cigarettes of similar taste profiles and I guess quality, you know, you can argue that, uh, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it's either a strong cigarette or a cold cigarette or a light cigarette, right? Um, so if it's relatively similar, uh, but it costs three times less, uh, the man on the street has a very easy decision to make, you know. Uh, he's definitely going to go for that, and that spurs the demand and I guess pays for the risk that these uh, illicit manufacturers and distributors are taking. So if anything, the government needs to step up enforcement there in order to protect the tax base that legal tobacco manufacturers provide to the, to the country, right? Uh, you know, we're talking about billions of ringgit in lost excise duty in opportunity cost by not stepping up enforcement. They're definitely doing it now. Um, you know, from 2012 all the way forward, all the tobacco companies were basically just interested in pushing the anti-illicit trade agenda. And that's something that's very publicly known. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussions going on with the government um, to get them to understand the scale of the problem. Uh, so now it's down to enforcement on-the-ground enforcement um, to choke the supply of illicit cigarettes because make, uh, you know, there's no running away from the fact that um, this business, at least the illicit cigarette business, um, you know, 
brings with it other social harms, either directly or indirectly. So I'll let the listeners uh, make of that what they wish, uh, you know, but essentially, uh, you know, the industry needs to be protected based on enforcement. Uh, I don't believe an accommodative sales environment by loosening regulations and, and the such uh, is ever going to happen. So, you know, like the DG of uh, KKM mentioned yesterday, uh, you prepare for the worst, but you hope for the best, right? So we have, or at least the industry has been constantly preparing for the worst with tightening regulations, but you always hope for the best that enforcement in anti-illicit trade kicks up to high gear. And that should hopefully bring back a lot more legal volumes back to the business. And by proxy, uh, a lot more wealth to the tax base of the country. Because let's not forget that SIN industries, right, pay uh, more than just income tax, right? So you pay your, you, I guess, contribute to the corporate tax base, and then you also contribute into the excise tax base. Okay, let's talk more. I mean, let's zoom out of the tobacco side. I think we've gone very deep there. Thank Quite you. deep. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> let's talk about consumer discretionary items in general. Sure. So um, now I realize that, you know, products that rely on some form of um, showing off some superficial value have really just dropped um, from a cliff. Like in terms of demand for those for those products, mm. I mean personally, I can't speak for everyone, but um, I was you know thinking about getting a Rolex, for example, and wow. I now in this no, I mean not like I can afford, but you know I was thinking you know one <laughs> right. day I would love to save, <laughs> one day I would love to save enough to be able to buy a Rolex off the shelf. Okay, and then now in this in this period, I'm like screw that, I need to get toilet paper, enough hand sanitizers, enough masks. Mm. Um, to survive, right? Who cares about, you know, branded stuff, LV, Prada, whatever, to name a few. So, you know, I, I just want to ask you if, if you feel the same. Do you, do you suddenly realize that, you know, um, most of our consumer behavior for the past few years have really been um, some kind of form of showing off? And, and, and it's not healthy. And I think people have started to, you know, just got a slap in the face right now, like showing that, look, don't, we shouldn't care about all those things. We need to survive. We need to have enough food for everyone. We need to be able to buy responsibly. Don't panic buy, things like that. So I, I don't derive any pleasure of getting that Rolex the same way as I would have maybe three weeks ago. Hmm. So I feel that there's so much value placed on showing off. And, and that ties into the bigger argument that, you know, we've been obsessed with materialism for quite a while as a society with, you know, increasing asset prices over the last few years. So, I mean, did this virus change your viewpoint at, at owning, you know, certain, it doesn't really have to be luxury goods, but maybe, you know, goods that are not um, not staple, you know, goods that are just purely discretionary? Hmm, okay, honestly, I think that's a very, very good question. And that's applicable uh, to a large number of listeners and also um, a larger number of Malaysians out there, just by and large, right? Um, so... Again, consumer behavior and purchase motivations, um, it's an extremely deep subject matter, right? Um, it's, uh, it's honestly very easy for us, you and I, to, um, 
to make a sweeping generalization in the sense where we extrapolate our own consumer behavior and our purchase ethics, for example, um, and apply that to uh, to the segment of the population that we belong to. So, you know, either in terms of income, in terms of gender, in terms of race, religion, whatever it may be, um, and even more so uh, to the wider pop- population. So what you and I might think are irrational purchases um, is extremely rational to many others. So let me talk a bit on... Uh, on this, right? On let's talk about whether these companies will actually survive or not before we zoom into specifically um, should Malaysians be buying this, right? So you know, according to rational consumer notions, um, expenditure on these luxury items and stuff can also be quite irrational in times of economic crisis. Uh, for example, um, just coming out of the depth of the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, had an almost 24% increase in sales of these Veblen goods, right? Uh, you know, highly, out, you know, extravagantly, to put it, outperforming uh, the general re- retail market that basically only grew at low single digits. Now, this trend con- continued uh, throughout the recovery of the crisis up until about 2010. Some may argue we haven't really recovered from it anyways. Uh, you know, but, you know, basically it's, you know, it serves to show that um, shockingly, and I guess in a bit of an anticlimactic way, um, luxury goods were extremely resilient, right? And generally, demand remains quite inelastic for these products, even through times of crisis, right? Um, now, let's zoom in, it into a bit of a Malaysian context, um, because I do also understand that a lot of what we are talking about are kind of global generalizations, but let's zoom into the Malaysian context, right? Um Top tier T20 uh, income earners here in Malaysia are notoriously well insulated from liquidity crunches. And, you know, I foresee continuous moderated growth in their consumption patterns during any type of crisis, right? And when I'm talking top tier T20, I'm not just talking about those that earn more than 9,750 or whatever that amount is uh, per month, right? I'm talking about those that are, you know, that are really balling, okay, um, in the, I guess, crude sense of the word. Um, so their consumption patterns, I don't think, are going to change all that much with regards to luxury purchases. How they purchase those products, either at the boutique in Pavilion or Star Hill, which I think is now being renovated or whatever, or they buy it online or they have a personal shopper or they're just such high net worth individuals that the brands, the boutiques go to them, um, it's really out of our imagination, I guess, at this sense. But uh, that consumption will continue. Destocking from a supply sense will inadvertently continue, right? So, you know, especially at a time when malls are closed, uh, retailers are feeling the pinch, uh, there's a mandatory control order, no one's really going out to buy anything. Um, there's definitely a lot of stock sitting in all these boutiques. And, you know, I guess if we look at it from a regional point of view, there's a lot of stock in Asia, especially, right? Because of that shipping lag and that transport lag, all that stuff's come in and it's all sitting here right now, but no one's buying it, right? So that will continue. You'll start to destock. Brand houses are going to be very careful not to dilute the brand. So again, there are bargains to be picked up then in 2020. So that Rolex that you wanted to buy, you could probably get a pretty decent discount off the ticker price. Um, and you know, then it becomes a question of 
perceived value, right? If it's low enough to the point where um, you feel it's a bargain, would you actually pull that trigger or not? Um, so that now goes back to the fickleness of consumer behavior. I'll give one other example. Um, and I think a lot of your least listeners are going to appreciate this. Um, for example, in 2008, right, Mercedes-Benz Malaysia, their sales were up 16%, double digit. It was their best ever year of sales in Malaysia up to that point in 2008. Again, peak financial crisis. You might argue, okay, the effects haven't reached Malaysia yet. But, you know, let's just go with that, right? 2008, 16%. They grew market share at 14% year-on-year growth, right? Cementing them as the market leader in the segment, which is the luxury car segment here in Malaysia. And they have not lost that up till today. So for the past 12 years, they have consistently been pushing double-digit growth, double-digit share growth, consistently remaining the market leader in the segment. I think they had something like 48% or something market share in the luxury car segment. Right now, if we look at that timeline, 2008 was the Asian financial crisis. Then we all had SARS. Then we had um, 2015. We had a bit of a slowdown. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to now, the past two or three years, we've had, you know, I guess weakening consumer sentiment. But these guys have just con- have just been growing. Many might argue that Mercedes-Benz Malaysia sales is probably not the right barometer for, uh, you know, to proxy the strength of luxury goods and the resilience here in Malaysia. But, uh, you know, it's a very, I guess, accessible barometer for the masses, right? In economics, there are many, 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 you know, metrics that people can look at and, you know, sort of draw curves and graphs here and there. But for the man on the street to actually understand what's going on, he's not going to understand, you know, things like, you know, GNI, GDP, uh, per capita consumption rates. He's just going to be going, hey, I've been driving up or rocking up to this traffic light every day for the past 10 years and uh, you know my income has been shrinking but i see more and more e-class cars at this traffic light right now you know than i've ever seen in the past 10 years so like that's the sort of accessible barometer that they will have and that is the fact so definitely resilient these companies will definitely continue to survive and the only reason they will survive is because there's purchasers backing them right Let's not forget that behind the pomp and circumstance um, of this luxury segment, be it cars or bags or watches and all these, um, these are still large conglomerates. They are large diversified businesses with an enormous stake in extracting maximum efficiency um, and sales growth out of their operations. So at the end of the day, um, if we look at it from a fundamental point of view, right? Um, LVMH, for example, is basically an FMCG company, you know. They're just producing products. Uh, fast, you, you know, the, the, the F in FMCG, at least if you're looking at it from their lens, maybe isn't fast, um, but it's definitely fashionable. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. So, I mean, okay, so now I'm going to ask you a, a moral or social question rather than, you know, pure pure numbers. I mean, I, what, what you pointed out is extremely interesting. In, in times of crisis, people actually um, tend to buy more. Not not people in general, but I guess the high net worth individuals. Um, wh- why do you think that that's the case? I mean, do you think there is a huge dichotomy here with rational, poorer um, sort of 
uh, poorer profile for for consumers versus the high net worth individuals who are just spending irrationally, doesn't that just show indicate the severe inequality that that we are facing here in terms of income, in terms of lifestyles? Um, do you think it's morally right? Like, I mean, I'm asking you as a as a personal question of, of what you think personally. Like, is is this behavior something that we would like our kids in the future to? to have I, I, for, I for myself I can definitely say no way like you know I'm you shouldn't be spending more in a crisis you shouldn't be buying luxury goods in a crisis you should only do that when you have so much disposable income so much you know money that that you have nothing else to do it do um, nothing else to spend on and okay if really you've covered all your bases all your basic financial needs you got enough investments enough dividends coming in every month every year and then now you want to splurge on a Mercedes or a Lamborghini or whatever, then that's fine. But it has to be the last resort. You know, it has to be the last thing on your priority list in terms of spending, in terms of expenditure. Um, but this is definitely not the case for these high net worth individuals in, in during a time of crisis. Um, if you're buying Mercedes in <laughs> in a time of crisis, that pretty much shows that um, you don't care and and you don't want to save for the future or you just have so much money, which I don't think is, is necessarily the case because I don't think all the all the buyers of Mercedes are tycoons, right? You've got your typical, you know, senior managers, not even C-suite guys, people who have perhaps a household income of 20,000 ringgit. They're already buying a Mercedes in a time of crisis, you know? So do you think morally that's right? Or, or do you think it's, or are you a guy that says, Okay, look, it's it's their rights up to them. But I I want to know what would you what would you tell your kid if this question came from your kid next time? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you know, first of all, if it came from my kid, I will say, well, um, you know, you should definitely purchase a Mercedes for daddy before you do it for yourself, right? Uh, anyways, uh, you know, just a bit of light light-hearted humor because um, this is definitely going to be a pretty contentious question that I'm going to answer. Uh, okay, so ethically um, or morally, rather, for that matter, um, I do not believe that uh, at, at times of crisis, it is the time uh, for anybody to be purchasing any luxury products. That's my own personal belief. Um, however, I guess the curse of, uh, of being a financier, uh, of being somebody who is extremely interested and, uh, you know, uh, quite experienced in corporate strategy is you tend to look at the flip side of literally everything that you do, right? So in the corporate world, I used to have to look at, you know, every single angle in order to come up with a particular corporate strategy or to plan um, a particular business operation. Uh, and you do it enough times that you then bring it with you back home. And then you start to look at literally every single thing from both sides of the coin. That's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Um, as human beings, uh, we all share the same uh, the, the, the same demands of survivability, right? Everybody has to basically eat the same amount. You need the same amount of oxygen, the same amount of water every day and things like that, right? Regardless of your income, right? Once your survivability is pretty much covered, uh, whatever is excess then uh, with regards to your wealth, uh, I personally believe is your own, is your own choice, right? Uh, my personal advice to people would be uh, do not do it. Uh, do not use this opportunity uh, to purchase luxury goods at this stage, mainly because uh, 
you know, we have no idea how this COVID-19 pandemic is going to pan out for the wider economy. And I'm not going to discuss the stimulus package and all that, uh, but just more on rational consumer behavior, right? Now, what has actually led me to this is the reality that we have a very wide income gap here in Malaysia. It's extremely wide. It's mind-boggling how wide it is. Probably not as wide as other places here in Malaysia, um, but it's wide enough and visible enough um, that you have an aspirational society start to form. Okay, so we have wide income gap. And that's now fueling this aspirational society that we have here in Malaysia. Okay, uh, now there's tremendous research confirming this that Malaysia is an aspirational society. Uh, but the only reason why you have an aspirational society is because you have people to look up to. You have all these people buying all these Mercedes Benzes and all these cars and uh, luxury watches and things like that. So that's fueling it, right? Like everybody wants a better future. Everyone wants a better lifestyle. Yeah. Um, it's irrational when people who do not really, uh, I guess, tick all the boxes in terms of wealth start to live that way, right? So that's when you now have people like, for example, as, as you put it, um, you know, mid-level mid managers um, stretching their leverage in order to purchase all these luxury goods. Now, that's def definitely irrational because it's going to have an impact on your own personal survivability, Right. Um, especially now, you know, when we've got uh, a lot of job risks and, uh, you know, your monthly income isn't exactly as, uh, I guess, as confirmed as it was in the past, you know, like literally anything can change right now. We are dealing with an, uh, with an, it, it, it's a very unprecedented uh, crisis that we're dealing with right now. So industries will have to react. Uh, your income may be jeopardized. If you have, if you don't have enough to weather through the storm and deal with your own personal survivability demands, uh, you're not really going to uh, come out of this all that strong. All that strong. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you because, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my example. My personal story was um, I, I I got another job like two years ago. I moved to, to, another, to another role and I got a decent bump in terms of my salary. Hmm. And I wanted... To, I, I was part of that aspirational um, group of people who are just, you know, always looking up to, to people who are, you know, young, but, you know, driving fast cars and, you know, traveling the world if we, in business class and all that. And I had to admit, I was pretty much smitten with that kind of lifestyle. And the reason why I feel so strongly about this is because I actually went through it, I did it, and I came out on the other end and I realized how superficial this this um, consume consumption behavior is and you know my listeners can can think whatever they want from what I'm about to tell but I basically got tired of you know buying things for to show off um, I got tired of buying things that other people were buying so that I could sort of you know graduate into that segment of society or whatever and post it on social media and whatever right so um, I got that new job I got a bump in my salary I bought a I bought a sports car, hmm. right? It's not a Porsche or whatever, but it's a you know it's a Japanese brand, but it was on the sports uh, sports car segment lah, whatever you want to call it. And I only had it for six months <laughs> because okay. I just I it was so clear to me within six months that whatever I was doing was BS, whatever I was doing was not making me happy or happier at all, right? So 
that's why I felt that you know morally I would not tell my kids to do it because I went through it I I put a lot of money down for that car to show off to to basically tell myself look you've made it you made it young you know you're you're young and you're earning this much and you should show it off and enjoy a little bit in life and I felt so morally corrupt <laughs> for that six months <laughs> and you know it's not just the color i was obviously you know going out to buy you know some tailor-made shirts you know uh, all these fancy cufflinks things like that and then now and and i straight away after that six months i just sold the car i got tired of it and i i got so pissed at myself i went to h&m to buy all my office clothes because i wanted to to tell myself look you know you can get you can get value without trying to show off and without spending a ton of money and especially in a time of crisis i realized that people should actually understand this like, i mean they can judge my experience but my experience was i did it i i really spent a lot of money doing these things and i did not feel happier like perhaps you know i'm not going to say other people may not feel happier doing that but i'm just saying from my personal experience it doesn't provide much value, man. At the end of the day, you need a shirt to cover your body and to, you know, and to look decent in a meeting for a corporate meeting or whatever. And and you don't need to spend a premium on luxury products to um, acquire happiness. I mean, again, I'm starting to sound like very hippie and very, you know, tree hugger, but Sounds I, like I, it. I became, <laughs> I became, I, I read up a lot of minimalism and I, I kept agreeing with every point they pointed out. So I, I, I really, I mean, that's my personal view. I mean, that's just something to add into the podcast. But yeah, I, I, I definitely felt mo- there, there needs to be a moral question, you know, instead of people trying to stand on this on, on, right in the middle and say that it's, it's up to you what you want to do with your money. But sometimes I just look at the dichotomy and the, and the severe inequality in Malaysia where you have you know, young kids of whoever who are spending ridiculous amounts of money posting it on social media and then you get all these kampong kids who are commenting, saying that, oh my God, you know, well done, you know, you're doing so well, I wish I can be like you, you know, I aspire to be like you. And I realized that, oh my God, there's just this huge dichotomy, this huge divergence of what really matters in life and what um, what, what you have to get to show off, you know. And I... I just felt that morally that there needs to be a question there um, for everyone to ask. But again, sorry I became so um, uh, emotional. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I think it is, a, it is a perfectly valid viewpoint to have. Um, it's a very important question that everybody should be asking themselves, right? Uh, which I guess you could basically summarize with, is this a need or is it a want, right? Um, as financiers, uh, we are we are basically trained to appreciate that uh, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush, right? Uh, and that, you know, savings matter, liquidity matters and all that. Um, but again, coming back to how I initially started answering or talking about this point is that uh, consumer purchase behavior has been fickle, will always be fickle because it's such an individually driven decision, Right. Um, and it's driven by a multitude of factors, um, you know, income gap and the aspirational uh, society we are faced with here in Malaysia is only one small part of it. Uh, there are many, many others. Um, now, I, I'm not a big believer in the past is the best predictor of the future. I just don't believe that uh, we, are, we are in that age anymore. 
uh, everything's changing so quickly nowadays uh, on multiple fronts, personally and and professionally. Uh, but certain fundamentals remain, right? And uh, one of which has to be this uh, this kind of um, reality check, which is you know, is this a need or is it a want? Uh, liquidity, especially now in a time of crisis, uh, specifically to COVID, liquidity is extremely important, right? A two hundred and fifty billion ringgit stimulus package. Uh, you know, again, debatable on whether it's actually 250 billion spent or not. Uh, but yeah, like that, that scale of economic stimulus, right, has never been done in the history of this country, ever. Yeah. And, um, you know, that basically goes to show that, again, liquidity counts. It's about putting money into people's pockets. Now, the question should also be, uh, what are you as an individual doing to put money back in your pocket, right? Um, one example, uh, um, I'm a big fan of Arabic food, okay? Uh, also coming from my time when I used to live there. And initially, I used to purchase hummus, uh, the chickpea paste, um, on an almost bi- bi-weekly basis. So every two weeks, I would order it on GrabFood and it'll come to the house. Um, as we started to, as COVID started to become more of a, of of a problem here in Malaysia, sometime in mid-Feb, I thought, you know, hey, okay, it's time to uh, pick up this bunkering mentality and start to get rid of a lot of these non-essential purchases, right? So let's start making it at home, yeah? But then that then led to the question of, is the food processor a need or a want, right? So this constant questioning of, is this a need or a want? Is this a need or a want? can be applied to many things that we have here in the house or many things that we are, in fact, paying for. Um, you know, and if you actually go through an inventory of what you're spending in your life, uh, you can definitely find other, other ways of making or deriving that same amount of uh, happiness or excitement from the experience without spending too much, right? Uh, Astro, for example. Now, I'm not here to go and hate on Astro, uh, I think they've done a you know a tremendous service for the country from when they were from when they started all the way up till now, but uh, you know maybe now is not the time for you to be continuing with your astro service. Maybe you are the sort of consumer where you've had an astro service because you thought that's what everybody needed to have anyways. If you have a house or if you're renting a place, you must have astro, right? Now that's a very common mindset that I've seen, you know, and more often than not. You can go months at a time without even watching it. It's like a gym membership, but it's in your house. And, you know, if you are in the M40 category, chances are you have both Astro and a gym membership, right? So start going through and start taking stock of everything you have and do in your life as to whether it's a need or a want. And you'll be surprised at the amount of liquidity you can unlock from your own house. Now, this is very like Marie, Marie Kondo or something, you know, all this uh, spark joy and stuff like that. Start sparking cash, okay? Uh, and, you know, again, you'll be shocked. I think so far at Tally, I've unlocked something like a couple of hundred bucks a month. I think it's about 350 or, so, or something like that. And it's on non-essential subscriptions. It's on uh, certain products that I used to think I really needed for, for survival, um, but then now I don't. Um, so yeah, it basically things like that, you know, um, liquidity important, um, you know, needs and wants, uh, very, very important to differentiate the two and 
having all of that or having both of those front of mind will then allow you to more easily answer that moral question, you know, are these luxury goods um, essential? Like, do I really need to buy this? Okay, that's a very solid point for all our listeners. Um, so we got 10 minutes left, bro. So let's go in towards your MBA. So sure. I think to pivot, um, did, did you have anything to, to tell us in terms of your research? I understand that you uh, did a lot of research here in Malaysia on the health healthcare side as well. You want to tell us more on that? Sure, correct. Um, so yeah, as part of the MBA program, uh, there was a there was a research component attached to it, and I really like that because um, you know I'm you know I guess you could call me a bit of a closeted nerd where you know I like to read up and I like to go very deep in uh, certain topics. Uh, for example, Mercedes Benz sales trends, right? I can be a bit of a loser in that sense, um, but yeah, my team and I basically set out to conduct a feasibility study. Um, on a commercial application of medical innovations here in Malaysia. So uh, it basically looked at, again, I'm trying to be as detailed, but I have to keep certain things vague as well. Otherwise, someone is just going to take it and do it, uh, you know, and then I'm just going to be, you know, sad in a corner because someone stole my MBA prize winning idea. Uh, so yeah, basically looked at the commercial vi- viability of on-demand intravenous nutrient therapy in Malaysia. Now, that sounds very bombastic and very you know uh, PhD level kind of thing. Uh, but what it basically set out to understand is basically um, there are certain Western medical innovations that involve perfusing micronutrients, so things like your vitamin Cs and other minerals essential for living, directly into the bloodstream in order to alleviate physical pain, fatigue, and other lifestyle-related symptoms, right? And it's extremely popular across much of North America and Western Europe. Um, However, it's a sort of innovation that's largely uh, popular because of positive experiences by celebrities and athletes, right? And it grew very, very quickly because uh, all these influencers um, who are, you know, like actual celebrities and actors, actresses, athletes, and all these things um, used it in order to help them keep up with their lifestyle. So, they, you know, you'd be shooting for something like 19 hours a day. You get three hours of sleep. And then the next day you have to be fresh faced for your next shoot. Right. Um, but biologically, uh, if you, you know, if you just left it status quo, your body is not able to repair itself. Uh, in that short amount of time or whatever little sleep that you can get. So you then need some sort of external intervention. And this is where this innovation came about. So, you know, again, think of it as vitamin C perfused into your bloodstream. um, And it allegedly uh, um, alleviates fatigue. Uh, So, yeah, it was very, very popular, uh, you know, billion dollar industry in the West. And it was something that we were quite interested to research because, we saw a lot of parallels in consumer behavior and income and all that uh, between what was going on in the West and what was happening here. Uh, so we thought, hey, um, why not, right? Um, I guess at that time we were all thinking, you know, oh, maybe this is something we can monetize. Uh, and it just led to the most, I guess, crazy idea on the table, which was to research this. Uh, but as we did it, we actually came up with uh, a pretty significant piece of work. And, you know, essentially the question set out to um, to identify whether this was a feasible opportunity. And it definitely is. 
um, especially because of the on-demand, um, I guess, angle that we applied onto it, right? So what we were looking was, you know, could this business based in Malaysia having an on-demand certified professional coming to your place of work or to your home, um, providing you with this service, uh, would that fly? And, you know, we went through the entire scope of research and we spoke to the regulators and we were, you know, working very closely with people like MOH, with people like Miti, um, with certain banks and things like that. And also with, I guess, uh, you know, a certain cross-section of the potential consumers. We held focus groups and stuff. And we got all that feedback and um, it was actually very, very positive. Um, and, you know, we're not talking about things that are going to cost, you know, a thousand ringgit per application, uh, you know, but the price range was actually comparable to a lot of other niche activities that people do here in Malaysia. For example, if you were to go for fly cycle, you pay something like 60 ringgit per session, right? Um, the pricing of this product is not too far away from that. So, you know, fly cycles constantly full. If you look at your Insta stories, everybody's on fly cycle and wearing all their pants and Lulu, what, Lulu lemon or Lulu watermelon, whatever, you know, and, um, you know, it's a lifestyle thing, right? So, you know, we set out to assess whether that would work. We believe it would work. And again, being, a, being from the finance background, uh, you know, I went really deep into the financials and the business case is pretty solid. Whether we're going to proceed with it or not remains to be seen. Um, I think the MOH has a lot on their plate right now, so I'm not going to bother them with an application at this stage. Uh, but yeah, um, that was something that was really, really fun. I encourage uh, anybody who's on the fence on whether to pursue uh, further studies post your first undergrad to definitely do it. Um, take the time, invest in yourself, uh, you know, think of it as, I guess, uh, you know, maximizing your chances for, this, for success in the future. Now, this research may not lead to anything much. It may just be a PDF on my laptop. But uh, the experience of going through it and speaking to different people and uh, forming your own, I guess, galvanized views of the world uh, through different lenses um, it's a very rewarding experience, you know. So uh, to shout out to the listeners out there, if you want to continue with your studies, uh, drop me a line uh, and let's chat. <laughs> very, very good. I I think, yeah, in terms of healthcare products, it's just going to go all the way up uh, eventually. Even this coronavirus really made people realize how important it is to stay healthy, keep your body in check. So, you know, I think in terms of the landscape right now, it is it is quite a very favorable environment to, to launch it. But, you know, I'll let you go through it. And if anyone here knows any venture capitalists or whatever, you know, just hit, hit him run up, right? Who knows? Who, who, who knows what will happen? But uh, again, I want to thank Imran uh, very much for being on the podcast. Uh, you know, I don't have many listeners, maybe around 50, but I hope when we hit 1 million, uh, Imran will be back on the podcast as so. well. <laughs> I hope we don't and, have to uh, wait that long. For that. <laughs> but, you know, thank thank you very much, Imran. And anybody who wants to get in touch with Imran, um, can just check our profile on Spotify. So, thank you, bro. No worries. Thank you, guys. And uh, again, final PSA to all listeners. Uh, I'm just going to be doing this shamelessly, right? 
stay at home. Uh, we need to break the chain of infection. Uh, every day we are basically met with a lot of negative news on increasing number of cases, um, increasing number of deaths, not just here in Malaysia, but also globally. So please stay at home. Uh, please make use of whatever on-demand facilities you have access to. Um, get your groceries delivered to your house where you can. Um, take that slight expenditure hit right now and think of it as an in, as an investment in not only your own health, but also the health of others around you. So be a good sport. Don't go out lepak. Just freaking stay at home. Lah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Give. 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 Give.